This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. You know, on the show, we talk with all sorts of experts and authors and different kinds of people who have got wonderful advice for us on how to do pretty much everything with kids. Today's show is going to be quite a bit different. If you're looking for a segment that answers all of your parenting questions about how to administer punishment effectively, how to get your kids to do their homework without having to nag them, and how to make sure your kids grow into respectful, conscientious, loving siblings, this probably isn't going to be it. However, we're going to be talking with an author and a humorist who has got some really incredible stories and advice, kind of advice, sort of advice on what not to do, about starting and raising and surviving a family. And you know what? You're going to have all the tools you need to laugh out loud along the way. Our guest is going to be Tim Jones. And when he was asked why he wrote the book that he wrote that we're going to be talking about today, he said, I saw a severe paucity of really bad parenting advice books, and I felt I could fill this gap better than anyone. The book is based on my own parenting experience, trying to parent two high-spirited daughters who like to challenge every decision I made. The book contains a variety of powerful, innovative child-rearing strategies which, if applied exactly as I recommend, will most likely result in only minimal long-term damage to your child's fragile psyche. So that's a quick sample of what's coming up in today's show. Really funny stuff, but also a kernel of great truth. I'm Armin Brandt. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brandt, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Tim Jones, who's the author of You're Grounded for Life, Misguided Parenting Strategies That Sounded Good at the Time. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Armin, and, and I'd like to make a slight correction in, in the title of the book, and it's a common misperception. The actual title, You're Grounded for Life, is in all capitals, so the correct pronunciation for my book is You're Grounded for Life! Misguided parenting uh, strategies. Okay, that I was good at the time. I was just trying not to exp- explode people's <laughs> radios. So, just uh, you were just before we went in the air, you were telling me about a little bit of a of a disclaimer that we have to give here, which is that these what we're going to be talking about. You're 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 a funny guy, and the book is a funny book, and th- but this is not to necessarily to be implemented in your own home if you want to have your kids survive i suppose if you want to avoid the scars that i've endured as a parent do not follow the advice in this book it is uh, i i put a little disclaimer at the front of the book that basically says do not mistake this book for an actual parenting voice uh, book with actual well-researched um, recommendations and if you do mistake this as an actual parenting book yeah, you're on um, your own. the author can't be held responsible for the fact that the reader is an idiot Yes. Well, okay. Or, or the listeners. Hopefully the listeners are the a little listeners. smarter than that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure they are. Well, so when did you realize that you had 
made a terrible mistake? What was your your, your first hint? <laughs> uh, that's a really great question. Um, uh, uh, I'm an adoptive parent. Our children are. We adopted both of our daughters. We have two daughters who are now 20 and 19, and we adopted them as as literally four and five months old um, in China. And I guess you could say. Um, I realized I had made a terrible mistake the moment that I first held my elder daughter in my arms and realized I was hopelessly hooked. I realized there was no backing out at this point. And uh, in fact, in my book, while I constantly poke fun at my kids, um, really I'm poking fun at myself and some of my own parenting mistakes that I made throughout the years. And uh, let me be clear, I couldn't love my kids. I couldn't love being a dad more than I do. Okay. How do they take to this whole thing? Do they they just well, shrug it off and say, "Oh, there's just dad <laughs> being an idiot again"? Oh, well, that's very, you. You have obviously you've been speaking to my daughters, Armin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, oh, the, my two daughters are a year apart. They couldn't be more different from each other. One of them could care less what I write, um, and the other one absolutely thoroughly enjoys it. In fact, for a long time, I would consult with them, and I'd say, okay, I've, I got this idea for a blog post. It's going to kind of be poking a little fun at you, a little fun at me. Are you okay with it? And after a while, there's like, just add, just go for it. We know you love us. We know it's in fun. Go for it. Um, so fortunately, I have t- two daughters who um, are very relaxed and easy about my humor. And yes, I've had more than my fair share of eye rolls over the years as I've attempted to inflict my humor on them. They kind of ignore me. <laughs> well, that's that's the traditional approach that you know kids have to deal with their parents who just haven't got it yet. Exactly, you know, exactly. Eventually. My older daughter once told me at the age of 13, in complete earnestness, that she had reached peak intelligence as a human being. And I said, oh, so you're, 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 you, you didn't reach peak intelligence when you were 11? And she said, no, that was two years ago. I'm so much smarter now. And that was the worldview that they had, that really, you know, Dad, you have no idea of what you're doing. And um, I, I'd like to think that time has proven that maybe one or two of the things that their mom and their dad have done actually will work out in the long run. You know, it just always reminds me of one of my favorite stories about my, my daughter who doesn't listen to this, so sure I can say anything I want. Uh, <laughs> but she, when she was in high school, I was helping her with a paper a little bit. And made a recommendation of uh, some uh, a speech from the Merchant of Venice that she might want to take a look at because it really kind of applied to one of the points that she was making. And she rolls her eyes and said, oh, this is just ridiculous. And a couple of days later, she said, well, you know, you, the book was right there, and I took a look at it. And, you know, it, it really did kind of help out. And you're not as stupid as I thought you were. <laughs> and I thought, you know, oh, that's yeah. like I have there's no place to go from there. Exactly. That's that's it. You've achieved the pinnacle of success. You right? have. In fact, I on a similar note, this happened literally about four months ago. Um, my older daughter um, was sharing some. She was giving some advice to a friend, and she was relaying to me the advice she was giving to her friend, uh, who was having some personal challenges. And I commented to my daughter, whose name is Rachel. I said, Rachel, that's outstanding advice. Um, uh, I couldn't give you better advice. That is absolutely. Perfect advice, and it was happened to be advice that I had given her, almost that same kind of advice years ago. And she said, of course, Dad, you told me, and you thought we weren't listening all those years? We <laughs> were listening. And I think that's a real big parenting aha moment for me is that we think a lot of it is going in one ear and out the other as they give us those eye rolls. But many times they really are listening. Yeah, which is kind of cuts both ways. Like it's got a good thing and it's a bad thing. 
<laughs> yes. You got to be a little bit more careful what you say. So, exactly. so talk about why you ought to lie to your kids. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I should say that one of the sort of common things in my book, Your Grounded for Life, is I try to pretend to be an expert. See, you, that's the difference between you and me, Armin, is you are an expert. I pretend <laughs> to be one, and that's an important distinction. Um, and um, I will t- tend to give, I will pontificate as if I know exactly the right thing to do, and hopefully the reader, or in your case the listener, is smart enough to know that you should do exactly the opposite. So when I wrote the post, Always Lie to Your Kids, and which was, became part of my book, um, really, that is actually one of the rare items where actually there is some truth to it. Because as a parent, believe it or not, we lie to our kids all the time. But we're doing it with the best of intentions. You know, they make us a, a, a special meal with, you know, gummy bears and maple syrup. And we go, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that is so tasty. And all the things that we do to make sure we don't burst their, their young, fragile, innocent egos. So it's that kind of lying that the, the article is about. And I try to approach it in, a, of course, kind of a silly way. I should just say that just in case those who were, were thinking that I'm, I'm an expert, you may also refer to my kids who will tell you that I don't know anything about anything. So the, I like to say I like to say oftentimes that outside of my immediate family, <laughs> I'm widely regarded as a parenting expert. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, what else is out there? I mean, the, the lying I think is is really interesting that that we do that. And I actually was just looking at some studies about this the other day that are talking about how we're actually doing our kids a disservice when we tell them how great they are because it ends up making them not challenge themselves because they don't want to, you know, to, to seem incapable, incapable or incompetent in our eyes. So they'll, they'll do things that are easier so that they can continually do really, really well. So we say how great they are. Yeah, it it, it is an interesting challenge. And I've had, I had sort of the opposite situation in my family. I don't know if my two kids who are from China inherited some tiger mom DNA that didn't come from their adoptive parents, but both of them have been, have pushed themselves much harder to achieve than either their mom or I have ever asked them to do. In fact, we've oftentimes had counseling sessions with them when they were getting really stressed out over schoolwork to, you know, there's this thing called balance. Um, but you're right, there is this thing, in, I think, rampant in American society, which is you get a trophy just for showing up. And I think that is really a, a bad message. There, I, I, I wrote an article called um, Winning Isn't Everything, Whining Is, and that's in my book. And the, the premise is basically that there, there was a, an actual soccer league in Canada that said if you scored more than something like seven goals more than your opponent, your team lost because it was considered unsportsmanlike. And so I took that to the ridiculous extreme and argued for how important it is for us to always do everything we can to protect our children's fragile ego <laughs> and avoid ever facing the real world at all costs. And the reality is, there's a wonderful statement, I didn't make this up, from the uh, author of Love and Logic, and that is, at some point, this doesn't really apply to young children, but like when they get to be middle schoolers and high schoolers, you can prepare kids for the real world, or you can protect them from it. You can't do both. Yeah. You know, I remember, it's probably maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago, something like that, there was a, a high school, it was a high school, maybe college basketball team that beat their opponents 100 to nothing. And I remember reading about that, and I think that the coach ended up getting fired. Yeah. It was yeah. a similar kind of a thing. You think, you know, there really is something. I mean, they could have stopped at 50, 
yes, or yes. 30. I mean, it, it's clear they're not going to score anything. So why yes. rub it in? Yes, yeah, that's that. That is that is a coach who <laughs> needed to be um, removed from his position, in my opinion. That's sort of the opposite side of the coin. Um, I think kids need to be, you know, when they're really young. Obviously, you, you kind of want to constantly reinforce them. You want them to believe that anything is possible. But when you get to a certain point, I do believe you you need to kind of let them understand that you don't get a trophy just for showing up. But at the same time, there is something called sportsmanship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always love those videos where they show the team where, you know, the, the, a, a kid who might be um, uh, physically challenged is, is invited to join the basketball game in the closing moments and helps score a basket, and both teams celebrate. We need a lot more of that in this world, in my opinion. Yeah. Tim Jones, author of You're Grounded for Life, Misguided Parenting Strategies That Sounded Good at the Time. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Tim. You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. <laughs> oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking to Tim Jones, who's the author of You're Grounded for Life, Misguided Parenting Strategies That Sounded Good at the Time. So you skip ahead to the teen years. Yes. What, what are the big, big things that we ought to be doing to ruin our children's teen years? Well, oh, gosh, where do I begin? I mean, I've, I've, in, in my book, You're Grounded for Life, I have a whole, a whole um, chapter just on the teenage years. And, I, um, for example, one of the things that, that you want to think about is, well, there's, you know, college costs an awful lot. It's a very expensive proposition. So you might want to consider, if you have multiple kids, which one you want to send to college and which one you want to um, you know, invite to become an Uber driver. And let, you know, and prioritize. And, of course, I'm being completely sarcastic <laughs> for people who may have just jumped in midway here. Um, but uh, for, for us, w with our kids, um, t to me, the most important attribute to being an effective father or mother other than obviously unconditional love, is patience. And boy, there's no period in a parent's life where patience is more taxed than when they are teenagers. And I would argue, and maybe I'm biased, parenting teenage girls has its own special challenges as a dad. Um, but just remaining calm and uh, not backing down. And I, I, I would tell you, my daughters have probably heard me say at least 5,000 times, make good choices. <laughs> yeah. so. now, don't, didn't you have the experience when your kids were teenagers, and you have daughters, I've got daughters as well, that there was a point in the teenage years where I could do no wrong because there was this, there's this uh, hormonally thing you know, th where they hate their mother and mm -hmm. they just can't stand to be around her and she's an idiot and it's terrible, you know, whatever, they can't, can't be with her and, Daddy, you're, you're the one. And I, I just, I got to say, I love that. That was that was the most fantastic time was being the one that come, you know they come running to when they needed things. Of course, now they I'm the one they come running to when they need money. But yes, uh, yes. Know, there's that. 
I am the, the the more pushover of the two parents, and and my daughters learned that early on. When I, when what you described, uh, they kind of outgrew that phase a little bit earlier in my in my case. Up until age nine, they actually called me Super Dad. <laughs> I know you, that's a term that you've referenced for yourself, but they actually literally called me that, in part because I trained them to call me that. It was part of my joke. Whenever I came to the rescue and helped them, I would go, da, 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 I'm super dead. By about seventh grade, maybe, maybe even fifth grade, they got tired of that, and they kind of figured out that they had sized up their old man, and he was square, and he was clueless, and his rules were too harsh. And uh, so I, I, that, that, oh, that glow had, had uh, faded by then. But I think... The key thing for me as a, as a dad was showing a constant demeanor, a patient, calm, not, not you know, I, I would give in over the little things, but not over the big things. And hopefully, you know, hopefully some of the boundaries that we set, and as most parents set, ultimately your kids get old enough to realize, okay, I get it now. I get why those boundaries had to be set. You know, speaking of boundaries, this is something that, that you've, you've got kids who are old enough to be in the middle of this situation. You hear so much about this, and it just seems like it's ripe for, for satire of parents who go to interviews, job interviews with their kids, the parents who write to, the, to a college professor and say, you misinterpreted something on my child's. You know, it's like, wait, these kids are, are 18, 19, 20 years old, and what are you doing? How, Absolutely. I know. Yes, it, it drives me crazy. And uh, um, <laughs> my younger daughter whose name is Emily, and she's wonderful. I love her every bit as much as my older daughter. Uh, she Who doesn't have was, a name, though. Uh, that's, yeah. What's that? Who doesn't have a name. That, exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. I often say my daughter, Rachel, who hates it when she calls when I call her by name, so I will refer to her as Jasmine. Um, <laughs> but uh, Emily, uh, at one time, in like, I think she was like in 10th grade, she asked me to help review uh, a term paper of some sort for school, and it was filled with grammatical errors and typos. And just, you know, in this world of texting, they make so many mistakes because they just they just write an essay like they're sending a, a giant text and i helped her a little bit but mostly i coached her and said this is wrong there's the problem with this you figure out what the error is and she ultimately said dad i pretty much slept through seventh grade grammar i missed all this stuff so i bought her now i'm not making this up i bought her three books on grammar and punctuation and syntax and <laughs> When she moved off to college, I opened up her little – she had a little mini-fridge in her, in her bedroom, and I found those three books in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure she used them very much, but I didn't I – didn't, I refused to go beyond a certain amount of helping. Yeah, that's an important part of it is that they, yeah. they've got to learn from making their own mistakes. Exactly Although it's right. painful to see it sometimes. You know, it's like, you know, you're such a capable kid. If yeah. you got your head out of your butt and you actually did the work, then, yeah. you know, but if you don't. I think one of the hardest lessons for me, but it's one that I really fervently believe in, is you have to let them fail. You have to let them make mistakes, especially when they're young, so that they realize there are consequences from poor decisions and reckless behavior. Because when they're young, if they can learn it then, they'll be so much more self-sufficient and making so much more thought-out decisions by the time they become an adult. You've got a chapter, Parenting is Futile. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a wonderful experience, but in the end, it's futile. <laughs> and what what do you mean by that? That they're going to eventually they're going to grow up to do whatever they want to do, regardless of what you said. Yes, there, there's a there's a. I'll just read this one if I can just find it because it kind of summarizes what I mean by that. There was a, actually um, one of the essays is called "Encourage Your Challenging Child Through 
positive parenting. And I'll just read this one small snippet. Um, if there's one thing I've learned as a parent is that in the end, your kids will crush your dreams, ignore your advice, join a banker, biker gang, and blame you for everything. But if there's a second thing I've learned, it's that you need to be positive. And then I go on and on that. And so when I say that in the end, parenting is futile, it's back to the point that you know we're, there is no textbook that we got in college or in high school about how to be a parent. We're all just trying to figure this out sort of on the fly. And you're going to screw up. You're going to make mistakes. No matter how hard you try, at some point your daughters will tell you they're lame. Um, and you just got to keep plowing through and know that in the long run, if you stick at it, stick with it, it will be worthwhile. So that expression, it's futile, is, of course, very tongue-in-cheek. No, of course. I mean, a lot of what you're saying is, but you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of truth there, too, is that we, I think, this is a good thing. We need to be spending a little bit more time not taking it quite so seriously. I mean, of course, it's serious business, and yes, it's the most serious job you can ever have, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But there can be humor in these things if you let it be. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can, I mean, some of the most heartbreaking events of my kids' youth, both they and I can look back on and just laugh out loud. My, um, my daughter, Rachel, just got her learner's permit. Just got her learner's permit. I was with her. She was so proud. One of the proudest days of her life at age 16, she drove into our driveway and hit next to the driveway a giant landscaping rock, caused about $600 of damage to her bumper, went into her room and said, I will never drive again. <laughs> Until the next and day. She was, she was just crushed. Her, her spirit, her ego, her confidence was destroyed. And, you know, as any parent, you know, I waited about an hour and a half for her to calm down. And I said, we're going to go for a drive. We're going to get right back on the saddle. And she's like, no, no, no. But we did. And we look back on that now and we laugh. Um, and it's just, it's just one of those things. It's, it's part of life. And you got to laugh. Yeah. If you don't, it's going to be a, a much more visible experience. I mean, the, things are going to happen anyway. That's right. Yeah. That's... Exactly right. So if you had to give advice to parents who don't have kids yet, and there are plenty of people who don't have kids yet, yeah, yeah. what would you tell them that they need to be doing to, to ensure that they get on the wrong path from the start? <laughs> well, the first thing is buy my book. That's really important. It's filled with uh, wonderful strategies that will only cause minimal psychic and uh, emotional scarring. Um, no, that my, my stock textbook answer is, stop, what are you even thinking about having kids? Are you crazy? But the real answer that I would give, because, of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of having a family and being a parent, and it's given me tons and tons of joy. But I think one of the things I would say is you need to know that they will go through a phase, the teenage years, whatever you want to call it. It's not all going to be cute and cuddly. They turn into completely different beings in many cases. Not everybody, but in most cases, they change. They fight for their independence, and it's, it's going to be some strain. Be patient. Stand by them. Always love them. And in the end, they will make it through. If you're there with them to guide them, not to do it for them, mm -hmm. but to help them, they will get through, and it will be the greatest journey of your life. Just a couple seconds left, Tim. What's your thinking about becoming a grandparent? It's going to happen at some point. I sure hope Looking so. forward to it? I am so looking forward to it. Somebody once told me being a grandparent is the reward for having been a parent, and I am very much looking forward to that opportunity because um, I'll have another audience. <laughs> <laughs> All these things you can do when, and tell the kids that it's just your secret. Yeah. 
I'll read to them chapters from my book every night. <laughs> Tim Jones, the author of You're Grounded for Life, a misguided parent, I'm sorry, misguided parenting strategies. It sounded good at the time. Tim, thanks for joining us. Armin, it's been my pleasure. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Time to talk some toys here. If you're looking for some fun new video games, your search is pretty much over. Here's what we're playing with right now. All of these games are great picks for kids of all ages, and they are available at the Nintendo eShop. Pokemon Super Mystery Dungeon for Nintendo 3DS. In many Pokemon games, you play as a trainer. That's a human who trains and cares for the Pokemon. But there's also an RPG series where you play as a Pokemon, exploring, battling, and earning treasure. The most recent game in that series is Pokemon Super Mystery Dungeon. You pick your character and a Pokemon friend, and you're transformed into a young Pokemon who must explore dungeons to help solve a major crisis, which is that Pokemon are being turned into stone. Throughout Mystery Dungeon, you can meet 720 known Pokemon. That's all of them, even the rare ones. Wonder Mail players can receive special items via their QR codes. This game is available now for $39.99 in the eShop or at your favorite retailer. Fire Emblem Fates. Here's a little something for the dads. Fire Emblem is the long-running RPG series, which now includes more than 15 games, and has tactical movements on a grid environment. Each environment has a variety of obstacles and story elements from dragon veins to deep canyons. The most striking element of this game, though, is the storyline, which starts out as many RPG role-play game games do, which is it's got a lost main character who's just trying to fit in. Your first decision, then, is whether to stay with the family that raised you, side with your biological family, or choose neither. Each choice triggers a different path, which takes your player on some really interesting adventures and situations. Fire Emblem Fate Birthright and Fire Emblem Fate Conquest both retail for $39.95, or there's a three-game special edition set for $79.95. The Mario and Luigi Paper Jam for Nintendo 3DS. Mario and the crew are back for a brand new adventure that pairs the three-dimensional Mario with his paper version. The action in this game is played out in role-playing style, where players take turns attacking with various skills to defeat their enemy. The battles are action-based rather than having to wait for your next turn, the funny dialogue and silly interactions make this game fun for both younger players and those with more experience. Be warned, though, once you start playing this thing, you're not going to want to stop. Paper Jam also supports Ambios as special power-ups that can be used in battles. Each Ambio can store character cards, and during battles, players can call upon those cards to get more powers. Ambios definitely make the game more interesting, and we highly recommend them because you can use them on multiple current-generation Nintendo systems from the new 3DS XL to the Wii U. 
Mario and Luigi Paper Jam retails for $30.99 at both the eShop and retail locations. Mario Tennis Ultra Smash for the Wii U. Mario Tennis has been an evolving franchise since the Nintendo 64, and with each iteration, the graphics get slicker and the gameplay tighter with plenty of new bells and whistles every time. The most prominent addition to the Ultra Smash is the Mega Mushroom, which makes your character explode to triple your original size, which can be a blessing or a curse depending on your skill level. A total of 16 characters are available in Ultra Smash, some of which you unlock by completing specific tasks. The game also lets you level up your Ambios, improving their status and giving them new skills. Retails for $49.99 at the eShop or wherever you buy your games. You'll find more reviews of more fantastic products at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, but you don't have to wait that long because you can go to parentsatplay.com or askmrdad.com and check out all of that stuff for absolutely free. But don't go anywhere quite yet. We are coming right back with more Positive Parenting. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. It kind of freaks me out that some people actually go through their trash to pull out recyclables. That's not for me. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. In your recycling bin? No, in my trash. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I don't even know what they do with recyclables. They make more of the things you use, Maria. More newspapers, more bottles and cans. Out of a bunch of trash? I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Recycling creates jobs and protects the environment. Is that important to you? It is, which is why I put my trash where it belongs. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. See why recycling is not rubbish. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. You know, there's a lot of judgment out there in the world these days. And of all the judgy noise around us, parenting criticism comes through loudly and clearly as a painful signal that manages to bring up all sorts of defensiveness and anger. Passing judgment on another parent, especially when the judgment is grounded in a philosophy of some kind, is a rude and noisy and even hostile thing to do. It's also one reason that some of us rarely do it in our face-to-face interactions, but that doesn't mean we're not thinking about it. And a lot of the time, what we are thinking, or another parent is thinking, has little to do, if anything, with what the latest research says. But science is useful. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about what science has to say about a number of crossroads that parents encounter, from vaccines to attachment parenting to circumcision and screen time. We're not going to be giving specific advice. After all, don't know every single one of you in all of your family situations, and we can't say which route would be best for you or your child. 
but we are going to give you the scientific information that you're going to need to map out your own path. And here and there, we're going to say what we've ended up doing, which may or may not have been terribly scientific at the time. We'll jump into the science and the art of parenting when Positive Parenting continues right after this. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Books them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Tara Haley, who is the co-author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Tara, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, I think you start off with a really interesting thing. It's actually not the first words of the book, but it's in there in the first chapter. So the plural of anecdote is not data, which kind of sets the table a little bit for your overall premise, which is that people are, are making big decisions based on stuff that they really shouldn't be making decisions on. Is that about right? Um, yeah, well, yes and no. It's not that they shouldn't be making decisions on them. It's just that when you make a decision based only on a story that you've heard somewhere or from your neighbor's friend and you apply that to your situation with the assumption that that's the right way to do something or that that's you know, a scary story that you should pay attention to, then you're not actually basing that decision on data that's been, you know, reviewed in mass, you know, population-level data. And population-level data isn't necessarily going to tell you what to do either, but it gives you more reliable information which you can use to make the decisions for your family. Right, right. Well, so, so, but you're advocating more of a science, let's look at what's really going on on, on larger-scale samples and rather than just what your brother-in-law told you or, God exactly. forbid, or, you know, what, what you read on the Internet, which is the, the, exactly. the worst place to get information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it's on the Internet, it's always true. We all know that. Absolutely, because it's on the Internet. I mean, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's the synonym for truth, isn't it? Yeah. So l- let's talk about from the very beginning. There's a, a lot of stuff about pregnancy. What are some of the, the myths, I guess, about pregnancy that people get wrong? Well, um, there's a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts. You should drink this. You shouldn't drink that. You should eat this. You shouldn't eat that. And some of that is based on evidence. Some of that is based on old evidence that no longer, uh, up, you know, hasn't been updated and is no longer relevant. And some of it is a little bit of an open question that we don't really have enough data on. So I think it's really important for people to understand where those recommendations come from. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Most women have heard they shouldn't ever eat soft cheese when they're pregnant. And I am an absolute lover of brie and camembert, so that was like a death sentence for me. <laughs> and it turns out that that comes from a huge listeria outbreak that happened in California almost 20 years ago or more, um, where um, a large Latina population 
was eating um, a type of cheese that was unpasteurized, and it was contaminated with listeria, and it was a big listeria outbreak, and it was it was very tragic. It was a bad situation, and that's where that recommendation primarily came from. But the thing is, listeria is a really hardy bug, and we have since seen outbreaks of listeria in cantaloupe, in ice cream, and it's it's very mm. common in uncooked meat. So listeria can be lurking almost anywhere. And it's impossible for you to make it nine months without eating anything that could ever have listeria in it. Whereas if you are eating soft cheese that's been pasteurized, your risk is no greater than if you're drinking pasteurized milk or you're, you're eating some fruit or anything else. So that's an example of one of those where, it, you know, it, it, the devil's in the details. Right, and, right. You know, yeah, eating anything unpasteurized is going to have a higher risk of any foodborne illness. Sure, but whether you're pregnant or not. If you're pasteurized free at the grocery store, you're perfectly fine having it. It's not going to harm you. Yeah. Now, taking it a little bit to the side, because we're not talking about things you can eat, but cat litter, or not cat litter, but cat feces seems to be an issue also. And there's exactly. always all the always these warnings about you should, as the, the expectant father, you should be doing all the cat duty and stuff like that. And that that one, I, I've actually looked at that, and it's just it's such a strange thing. I mean, your normal is. person is not going to be picking up cat poop with their hands and then rubbing their face with it. Uh, and you know, the, and the thing that seems to be the bigger problem is actually gardening, because exactly. it's just a yes. giant litter box <laughs> for cats anyway. I will admit that I'm not a gardener, and we do have cats, so I didn't fill my husband in on that evidence until after I gave birth. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, little confession there, but no. Um, the the fear there is toxoplasmosis, which is a parasite that does does require a cat's digestive system to complete its life cycle. But once a cat has had it, it can never get it again. So you're really only concerned about very young kittens or, or cats that are you know have only been outside once, and the first time they're outside, they usually get it from eating raw meat, like a bird or a mouse that they catch. So unless you, if you have a cat that's always indoors or a cat that's been around for a while and has probably had it at least once, it's not a problem. However, there are wild cats all over the place and in sandboxes and you know sand volleyball courts and gardening and all the other places that wild cats might use as their litter box. That actually has a higher risk because they're wild cats and they're having wild kittens and those wild kittens are eating. You know, wild mice and birds. So right, right. there is a risk of it, but it's not really a risk that you can terribly easily control unless you just don't garden during that time. And, and the cat litter is, unless you just got a brand new kitten who loves mice, it's probably mm -hmm. not an issue. Right, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that are going a little bit later on in the pregnancy. There, just what about diet? And I mean, there's all this various kinds of theories and studies that are contradictory, of course, that show that what the mother eats is going to affect what the child is going to be liking later on. How does that all work? We're still learning a lot about the taste preferences thing, and it's more likely that that there is some evidence for that in breastfeeding, but the evidence for during pregnancy is much, much, much weaker. I, I wouldn't put much on that at all. So um, I ate a variety of things, including lots of spicy foods, with both of my kids, and their taste buds are very different. So it's, um, you know, that's anecdotal, of course. But we don't have a strong evidence on that. The most important thing in terms of diet is just that you're getting a pretty balanced diet and a healthy diet. The thing that's more likely to affect your child in utero is not so much the food itself as the weight that you're putting on with the food. Right. Um, excessive weight gain can have an impact, and that's also hard to tease apart from lifestyle factors once mm -hmm. the baby's born, 
but that's going to play a bigger role than whether you have a particular type of food or not. Right. You know, I want to jump past the pregnancy stage, but I think it, because people are going to ask about this, what about alcohol? Yeah, I was waiting for it. Um, well, you know, it's one of these things I almost didn't want to ask because, you know, there's going to be some people who are going to say moderation means different things for different people, but right. give us the, the science here. This is one of the trickiest ones. It is impossible to say precisely how a single glass of alcohol will affect a fetus, regardless of the stage of pregnancy, because we don't know what is happening in that fetus's brain or organ system at that precise moment that you drink it. I had several glasses of wine when I was pregnant with my second child, and having dove into that research as I have, I would not do the same again um, unless I had a, an extenuating circumstance, like I was just utterly stressed out beyond belief and a single glass of wine was going to calm me down, where the stress is probably a greater risk than the wine. Um, for the most part, we know that any exposure during the first trimester can have an impact, but it, it's not one of those things where if you have... If you had some before you found out you were pregnant, you don't. it's not something where you should be stressing out about it because the stress that you have then is more likely to have a greater impact. At the same time, alcohol is a neurotoxin, and it does go to the, through the placenta straight away. So if it goes in your body and your bloodstream, it does reach your child. What we don't know exactly is what it does when it gets there. And it, we, we know that it can cause cellular death, and we know that it can interfere with cellular, uh, you know, um, Reputation, mm-hmm. um, division, cellular division. But you know, it, it, what if your your baby is taking a break from its growing at that moment, and there's nothing special happening for that hour that you happen to have the alcohol? Well, there's not going to be an effect. And if there is an effect, it's almost certainly going to be so minor from a glass here or a glass there that there's not going to be any clinical effect. In other words, you're not going to know that you're not going to see like, oh, my child has one less IQ point than they would have had. And even if you did, you're not going to know that. So it's, it's, I, I never want to tell someone there's no risk because we know based on the chemical, you know, things that happen in the body, there is, there is some kind of risk. It's impossible to quantify, and we may never have the tools that can quantify it. So it's, I hate to right. give such a wishy-washy answer, but it's the clearest answer I can give. Based yeah. On the evidence. Well, I think that the bottom line of the whole thing is that it's a risk that you can control 100% by just not having any. So why, take, why take the risk? If it's and not I, absolutely necessary. To an extent, I agree with that. But I also feel strongly that there are, I, I feel strongly that women have often been talked down to when it comes to that. There's sort of a paternalism in that. Not not from you, I just mean in general. And I think women have the right to make the decision about what they're going to do. And if a woman tells me that she is just incredibly stressed that day, she's had a horrible, awful day, she's crying, she's depressed, she doesn't know what to do, and you know a single glass of wine is going to help her recenter herself, right. I'm not going to tell her that she's going to harm her baby by doing that, because we don't know that. Right. And it may right. very well be that the calming, you know, maybe she just prevented preterm labor by stress, you know, not being so stressed out. True enough. So it's, yeah. it's, I think it's really important that women just are aware of it, and then they make that decision based on what we do and don't know. Talking with Tara Haley, who's the author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Tara about what's going on in science and child-rearing. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease, and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. 
She too was surviving kidney disease. She showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Tara Haley, who's the co-author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. wanted to skip ahead a little bit past the whole pregnancy thing and talk about some, some things that are also you know, likely to get people all riled up. The cloth versus disposable thing. What, why is that even... What, what's the science there? Is there any science there? I mean, you talk about that in the book, and I'm just curious right. about how it happens it, to it, end up there because it seems to be not the most scientific of things. Well, and we, the reason we discuss that is it's one of those things that a lot of parents disagree over, and there's a lot of judgment around it. And one of our oh, goals yeah. of the book was to reduce that judgment. And um, in the case of cloth versus disposable diapers, the science that you can look at is more economic and environmental science. So neither of them is, unless your child has an allergy to one of the fibers in a cloth diaper or one of the chemicals used to make the disposable diapers, there's not really a health issue so much. It's more so, I mean, there's some people who will argue that more rashes occur with one or the other, and that tends to be too individualistic to each child to really say competently. So the question is really, are you harming the environment more with one than the other? And the science is pretty equivocal. We don't have evidence that one of them is that much more superior to the other. Um, diapers definitely comprise a huge number of what's in landfills, but they do biodegrade eventually. At the same time, using cloth diapers uses a tremendous amount more water, and water is a pretty important resource that's limited as well. Um, so, And then you have to consider other factors that could influence those things, uh, such as economics and time and you know, is a mom who's working two jobs and doesn't have time to wash the the uh, cloth diapers, is she really doing the best thing for her family and her child if she's stressing out over it so that she can sure. save the environment that day? So it's we, we don't have evidence that one of those is truly superior to the other, and I think it's perfectly fine for people to rely on their own value system to make that decision. All right, so as long as we did the controversy thing, we have to talk about vaccines. Yes. So, which is another one of these things. It's like a conversation about the death penalty or something. You're probably not going to convince people. Well, actually, hopefully you will convince people because I, I think that it's, uh, I think you, it gets I think to be really... There's one small section you'll never convince. But I think a lot of people are open to hearing about the evidence. Well, what surprised me, actually, part of the reason I'm asking, because just a couple of weeks ago I read this thing about uh, Robert De Niro, and he, who runs a film festival in, in New York, Tribeca, and there was a documentary that was produced by none other than this guy Wakefield, who has been completely debunked over the years and all about the vaccine thing all over again. And mm-hmm. that that film was supposed to be screened, and then they decided to pull it at the last minute, which I think is a good thing. But why why is this still out there, this business about vaccines causing autism or causing or killing people or, or you know, the, the various things that this guy faked the data on? One thing to, that's important to realize is that when Edward Jenner first created the smallpox vaccine out of cowpox back in the 1700s, 
people were afraid to get the smallpox vaccine because they thought it would turn them into cows. <laughs> okay, that's it. Well, I guess <laughs> that's that's a 21st century laugh, right? I mean, exactly. I suppose, yeah, 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 there and you yet, go. And yet, that was a very real fear then, and there's been many fears since then. So the anti-vaccine movement in general has been with us literally since the day a vaccine was invented. The question is what the culprit's going to be each time, and autism is the perfect culprit because it is a condition for which we, we don't understand the causes. It, it looks different to different people. It's a challenging condition and disability Um so there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons that we would, it shows up right about the same time that you get your vaccines. I mean, we, it's harder to, to discern the symptoms before one to two years old, which is right around the time that, that kids get their MMR vaccine. So it kind of have, has all of the, the perfect factors to be a culprit, you know, to be a scapegoat. Um, but then there's also the, the fears in general that when you are, you're injecting a syringe full of stuff that you don't understand into your tiny baby's healthy body. That's not how we usually think about medicine working. We usually think about medicine working as I'm sick and I'm going to go and get medicine for my child or my, my child's sick and I'm going to get medicine for my child and that's going to help them. You don't usually think about medicine as I have a healthy child and I'm going to give her medicine so that she doesn't get sick. So it goes against what our intuition is. So it's, the fear is understandable. It's just a matter of trying to help parents get over the cognitive, you know, biases that will stop them from accepting what the data shows. Okay. And so your overall recommendation is listen to your pediatrician? Absolutely listen to your pediatrician and um, recognize that the benefits of the vaccine based on probably the largest consensus of evidence we have on any other issue than parenting <laughs> it's, it's definitely the the biggest stack of studies, the, the benefits definitely outweigh the risk. That doesn't mean that there's no child that will have a risk, and it doesn't mean that your child might not have a special condition, such as an immune condition, mm -hmm. which might warrant a, a medical exemption, which is why you should always talk to your pediatrician. But in terms of the aggregate, the benefits are much, much, much greater by orders of magnitude of the risk. Right. You, know, you mentioned that autism is something that we don't know what the causes are, and you don't know how to prevent it exactly. And SIDS is another one of those things where people are not completely clear on what causes it. There, there's right. some suspicions. but So what is it that people can do? Because that, that's a reasonable fear that, I mean, you know, it's just Very a, much, a panic, yeah. a reason to panic, I think. Uh, but how do you tell people what, what they can do to minimize the risks, at least? Yeah. What works? Well, the, most, the most important thing they can do is to ensure that babies are put down on their backs. Um, right. the, the biggest single risk factor, well, there, actually there's two. The two biggest single risk factors are smoking during pregnancy, uh, much more so than smoking after pregnancy. It's specifically during pregnancy that's the bigger risk, and um, putting babies to sleep on their stomachs. Those two are far and away the biggest risk factors. After that, some of the protective things you can do, um, if you have chosen to breastfeed and or if you have the ability to breastfeed, breastfeeding does cut the risk of SIDS in half. It's not clear 100% that that's causal, but we think it is. We think it actually is something about the breast milk and the act of breastfeeding that is cutting that risk. Um, you can also give your baby a pacifier. Pacifiers actually reduce the risk. Making sure that the sleep environment is very safe, that there's no pillows or positioners or blankets or you know cute stuffed animals, anything like that should not be in there. It should be a firm mattress, not a, a soft and fluffy mattress. Right. 
Um, so those are some of the, the most important things you can do. Now, what about sharing a bed? That That's kind of come in favor and gone out of favor, and I think currently the American Academy of Pediatrics says it's it's out of favor. And part of the reason, it seems, is that they're worried that people are going to roll over their babies, which I, I always strikes me when I'm teaching. I teach a class for expected fathers is, you know, th- think about the last time you fell out of bed when you were sleeping. It, it, it doesn't happen. Unless you're drunk or something like that, you're not going to roll right. over your baby. So what what is the, the safety factor or the science behind sleeping in the same bed with your baby? This is another really contentious one, and it's one of the ones where the way that we present the evidence may be found controversial by some of the public health officials. They're, they're probably not going to like some of what we include in there. When you take into account all the different factors that can contribute to a safe sleeping environment, which is not smoking during pregnancy, not smoking after pregnancy, not using alcohol or any other kinds of you know, depressive drugs, um, you know, legal or illegal, um, making sure that your child is, not, uh, is on a firm mattress, making sure that your child has a, you know, no uh, blankets or anything around you, you're breastfeeding. When you put all those things together, the risk in co-sleeping of SIDS or of suffocation is almost flat with being in a crib. And I say almost because several studies will show that it's increased. The problem is that a lot of the studies that show it's increased have not accounted for all of those factors, and they don't account for whether a person intended to fall asleep versus accidentally fell asleep. Oh, yeah. The difference being, of course, that if you accidentally fall asleep, you may not have set your child up in such a way as to ensure that, you know, the pillow is not going to be on their face or something. Um, And we, we present that with the knowledge that we don't want to tell people, hey, it's perfectly safe to co-sleep, it's just as fine as having them in a crib, because we don't know that. Um, but we also know that sleep deprivation is a very serious concern, and getting into a car accident or hmm. you know, having a crying exactly. baby that you're so exhausted you sit down on the couch and you accidentally fall asleep, and, and the baby's in far greater risk on a couch, we can't dismiss those risks either. So right. it's a matter of, cons- you know, you've got a risk-benefit balance there, and you have to consider these are the protective factors, yeah. These are the risk factors, and here are the other risks I have to weigh here if I have a child who simply doesn't want to sleep on their own. You know, we only have just one minute left. I just want you to just, what was the most surprising thing that you found as you were going through verifying the science on everything parenting? Um, I'm actually going to borrow from my co-author who has talked about this a lot. But, you know, together we noticed that there's virtually nothing on fathers. <laughs> fathers are fathers are unfortunately very left out of the literature. A lot of the research focuses on moms, and fathers kind of get the shaft on that, which is unfortunate because fathers play an increasingly important role. They've always played an important role, but I think in recent years with equality, it's become more important, and I think we need more research into what fathers, you know, what role they play in children's lives, especially in infancy. Tara Haley is the co-author with Emily Willingham of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Tara, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.